Are you fucking me right now? Yes, I made up racism <laughs> in America. Everything was great. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch. It's the show that can make the sun rise and sprinkle it with dew. I'm Lindsay Tucker. I'm your co-host for the day. This is the show where we do a deep dive into the snackable stories behind your favorite or not-so-favorite songs. Joining me this week and every week is Aviv Rubenstein. Aviv, hello. Lindsay's having a real <laughs> having a real one today. I I Okay, we got to go back to... Did you blow the dew? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think you could do that. I think that that's not how that works. Well, if it's candy, it's I candy can do whatever dew. I yes. want. So what? Yes. So I could do whatever I want. So what are we talking about today, Lindsay? <laughs> today we're talking about Candyman. Today we're talking about Candyman. And we have postponed recording this a couple of times. And I have been like itching, crawling, tearing my skin out excited to talk to you about this because this (laughs) this episode has everything that we talk about so listeners at home fill out your bingo cards for all of the things that we like talking about on this show and just let us know when you hit your hit the bingo so what are the things let's write them down you could you write write yourself a bingo card what what are you what are the things for you patriarchal bullshit okay we might get that Sex assault. We might get that. Cultural appropriation and stealing of people's work. We might get that. But people at home know that there are Creepy movies. Creepy movies. Yes, there is a creepy movie involved, kind of. All right. So let's take a listen to Candyman, specifically the version of Candyman that we're talking about today. Come to the right man because I'm the candy man. This guy has a rape van. It's full of candy. Sprinkle it with you. Cover it with chocolate. No, yes. Yes. Seems like maybe yes. The candy man can. Who would write this? I'll tell you. Lemon pie. Candy man. The candy man can. The candy man can. The candy man can. Let's play a quick round of Does It Slap? I think it kind of slaps. Do you like it? You're into it? I think it's creepy and weird, and I have no idea why it exists. I thought it was written for Willy Wonka, and if not, I'm entirely creeped out. But it well, kind of reminds me of a, a Christmas song with a rapey undertone. Much like many Christmas songs. <laughs> um, 
this episode is inspired by the You Must Remember This podcast, which has a 12-episode series on some of the things that we're talking about today. And so I highly recommend that. But a lot of the sources are going to come from Karina Longworth, as well as some of the additional research that I've done. Because this, this story is weird. It's called You Must Remember This? Yes. Like, as in... A kiss um, is just a kiss? Exactly. That's their theme song, is As Time Goes By. This is, this is the social media clip, just us. <laughs> This song is three minutes and 12 seconds long, and it feels like it's an hour. It definitely feels like it's been an hour. 57 not a lot ha- minutes. Not a lot happening in this song. This story starts in 1954 with a woman from Akron, Ohio, named Helen Boss. Boss man. Helen was the widow of Frank Boss, who served as the police chief of Akron, Ohio. So this is from the Akron Beacon Journal, like Akron, Ohio. Uh, Mrs. Boss liked to spend winters in Van Nuys, California, but the cross-country trip was too long to drive on her own, so she took out an ad in the Akron Beacon Journal for Travel Companion to share the ride and the expenses. This is 1954, so this is like what people did. Uh, And a a nurse named Bessie Roth, who was 69 at the time, um, and she was from Good Street in Akron, she responded to the ad thinking that a vacation in sunny California would be the perfect antidote to another Ohio winter. Thomas McDonald, 22, also of Akron, also responded. He wanted to go to Lancaster, California to visit his brother Eugene at Edwards Air Force Base, which is now a Space Force Base. This is culty. The older women let McDonald handle the bulk of the driving in Helen Boss's Chrysler. The vehicle rumbled west to Chicago, veered south on Route 66 towards Southern California. So Several just days... the three of them. Yeah. Several days later, McDonald, the, the, the young man, reached his stop. He left the car. He bid farewell to the women who continued to drive to Van Nuys, which is like in L.A. Mrs. Boss pulled the car onto the highway. As the sun rose on November 19th, 1954, over San Bernardino, California, she realized that she had missed her turn at an infamous fork at Cajon Boulevard on Route 66, Cajon Boulevard and Kendall Drive. So she stopped the car, and she began to back up so she could go on the other side of the fork. And she did not see a Cadillac approaching in the rearview mirror. The candy man was in it. You're right. So it's November 19th, 1954, and Sammy Davis Jr. is on top of the world. What a transition. Yep. He had grown up in vaudeville in the 20s, and he had been performing since the age of three, eventually forming a three-person team with his father, Sammy Davis Sr., and this other guy named Will Mastin called the Will Mastin Trio. Was Sammy Davis in the Rat Pack? Yes. But not Jr.? 
Sammy Davis Jr. is in the Rat Pack. Everything you know about someone named Sammy Davis, you know it's, it's Sammy Davis Jr. Okay. I'm super glad that you're not f- very familiar with Sammy Davis Jr. No. This is going to get fucking weird. What do you know about Sammy Davis Jr.? Uh, that his death did not leave an opening in the Rat Pack for Christian and Clueless, according to uh, Cher's dad. Okay. We're going <laughs> to... We're going to keep moving. So so uh, Sammy Davis Jr. formed the Will Maston Trio with Sammy Davis Sr. and Will Maston. Throughout his teens and 20s, Sammy discovered that he was a talented singer and comedian, an impressionist, and he would do impressions of contemporaries in pop culture like Frank Sinatra. This is what like got, his, got Sinatra's attention. He also did a Brando, and Brando like sent him a note backstage being like, I don't like impressions of me, but yours is good, kid, or whatever the fuck. So this is from Vanity Fair. Sammy encountered serious racism in the army. Quote, I had been drafted into the army to fight, and I did, with Southerners and Southwesterners who got their kicks out of needling me. I must have had a knockdown, drag out fight every two days. He said this in his autobiography called Yes, I Can. His nose was broken countless times and permanently flattened, and he was given beer to drink by his buddies that was laced with their urine. Gross. Really gross. Racism bingo card. <laughs> Check. And it was only when he was assigned to special services for which he performed in camp shows across the country. Think like the beginning of White Christmas. Oh, it was only then that the acts of violence diminished. Even then he would search the audience every night for troublemakers. Quote, I had to make the audience acknowledge me. I was ready to stay on stage for hours dancing down the barriers between us. Okay, so one tap dance at a time, Sammy Davis Jr. is curing racism. Exactly. And this is Sammy's quote from a Playboy interview in 1966. I didn't want to go out there, but I made myself do it anyhow. I was fighting myself so hard to stay out there that the fighting made me do maybe one of the best shows I ever did in my entire life. I'm glad I did it because I discovered something. I saw some of those faces out there grudgingly take on different expressions. I don't mean for a minute that everyone started loving me. I just, I didn't want that from them anyway, but they respected me. It taught me that the way for me to fight better than with my fists was with my talent. Incidentally, he told this to Alex Haley, the author of Roots, who was interviewing him for Playboy 10 years before Roots was published. Wow. Yeah. So after the army, Sammy struck out on his own and started performing in both nightclub acts in Vegas as well as on television. And in 1954, he released his first single called Hey There on Decca Records. So this is Hey There. This is Sammy Davis Jr.'s first single. And so what I'm going to do is tell the next part of the story over this song. So on November 19th, Sammy performed a late show at the Frontier Hotel in Las Vegas and he had a recording session in the next few days. So instead of driving off the strip to find a hotel that allowed people of color to stay there, which was a big deal at this point, he was performing in hotels at which he couldn't sleep. So instead of figuring that out, he and his valet, Charlie, decided to drive back to L.A. together, taking turns driving. The drive from, Cadillac. Drive the Cadillac, yeah. Drive, the drive from Vegas to L.A. is four hours but with 1954 automobiles it's probably took a little over five and sammy had a brand new cadillac eldorado that was 
bought for him by the other members of the Will Maston trio as a celebration for Hey There coming out. They drove on the famous Route 66, and about halfway through, near San Bernardino, they switched, and it was Sammy's turn. And much to Sammy's surprise, his song came on the radio. So this was a big deal for anyone in 1954. He cranked up the tunes, presumably sang along with his own song on the radio. He arrived at the infamous fork in the road, and he did not notice Helen Boss backing up in the other lane. Boom! So this is back to the Akron Beacon Journal. The grinding, steel-twisting, glass-shattering noise screamed all around me, Davis wrote in his second autobiography, Why Me? I had no control. I was just there, totally consumed by it, unable to believe I was really in an automobile crash. I saw the impact spin the other car completely around and hurl it out of my sight, and then my forehead slammed into the steering wheel. The impact catapulted Davis's sleeping valet, Charlie, uh, who suffered a broken jaw, as among other injuries, and the Akron women were thrown into the back seat of their car. They suffered broken bones. Sammy didn't pass out right away. He came to, he kind of came to to see Charlie bleeding, and so he's trying to help Charlie. Charlie opens his eyes and looks at Sammy with total terror. The Candyman. The Candyman. You really don't know. This is this rules. I really don't. Because Sammy's eye was dangling out of its socket. What? It was like hanging on by a thread. No. So, Sammy figured out that his eye was out, and he tries to, like, shove it back in. Stop. Trigger warning. Okay. Well, I thought that there's one thing about Sammy Davis Jr. that everyone knew. And he <laughs> was lost missing his a, eye. He lost his eye. So, you see, the <laughs> 1954 Cadillac Eldorado had a design feature in the middle of the steering wheel that was like a raised mound. So, I'm sending you a picture of it. It was called the bullet wheel. There's like, it's like a, like a obloid thing the size of like a baseball right in the middle of the steering wheel, that's what Sammy hit his face on. That's what c- took out the eye. popped out his eye? Popped out his eye. So what happened next? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Once Sammy notices this, he tries to shove the eye back in the socket so he, he could kind of fix the problem himself, and then he just passed out. Eventually, the police found Sammy and Charlie, and they didn't recognize them as... Uh, they didn't recognize Sammy as a famous singer, so they just saw I two... wonder why. Right, but they just saw two black men on the side of the with road in 1954 out. with an eyeball out. So they took, they took them to one hospital, and that hospital wouldn't admit a black man. And so this is according to... Are you fucking me right now? Why would I... Yes, I made up racism <laughs> in America. Continue. Everything was great. So, they. Uh, this is according to the You Must Remember This podcast. Sammy was taken to a local hospital who didn't have enough beds for him. And then once they discovered who he was, they transported him to another hospital, which also didn't have room for him. So, they treated him in a hospital bed in the hallway. I'm sorry. What? All right. So, at this point, how long has the eye been out? Uh, a few. A couple of hours. Like, not a short amount of time. So... It's 
dead? Yeah, that's, that's not coming back, my guy. <laughs> Sammy was actually very worried, not just about losing the eye, but also about his leg because it was mangled in the accident and he made, made his bones as like a dancer. The doctor, whose name is Frederick Hull, told him that the leg would make a full recovery, but uh, the eye had to go. And this didn't cheer Sammy up too much. Because he already had a pretty pessimistic appraisal of whether white audiences would accept a black man, let alone a black man with a fake eye. I was thinking pirate patch. Oh, there's a pirate patch story. Don't you worry. We got, (laughs) I got you covered. I got you covered on this. (laughs) You knew you wouldn't let me down. So Sammy, Sammy idolized Frank Sinatra, who he had met when Sammy was a teen. And this was like such a significant kind of professional crush that later in his career sammy would stand next to frank laughing hysterically while frank made fun of sammy for being black like this is like the rat pack days sammy was like the token black guy and everyone would just make fun of him for being black and and sammy would like be like you're right i am black (laughs) great which like compared to the stuff that he faced in the army must have been kind of hard um but Sammy used to also dress like Sinatra, too. Like, when Frank bought a white trench coat, so did Sammy. Frank and Sammy had a bit of a tense relationship at the time because Sammy did a photo shoot with Ava Gardner, Frank's wife, and the tabloids got a hold of, like, a behind-the-scenes photo of Gardner sitting in Sammy's lap. Mm. Now, there's a lot of assumptions happening, and no one, like, spoke openly about this stuff back then, especially, like, dudes like men it like rat pack men are not gonna be like hey man like uh, it really hurt my feelings when ava sat on your lap but there had to be a component of racism there too 100 percent. oh 100 percent. so there's like there's there's so many variables that we could talk about this one photo shoot for like an mm-hmm. hour but there's there are rumors that ava and sammy were fucking there are rumors that there was nothing going on and the Frank apparently got wind of these photos before they ran in Confidential Magazine because they didn't run until the the spring of the following year. But I think Frank was, like, upset that his wife was pictured with, like, a black guy because they were not, like, working together yet, Frank mm-hmm. and Sammy. Okay. They just were, like, prof- they, like, knew each other professionally. Um, Frank did not like the association. Meanwhile, Frank is also fucking anything that moves. Everyone. Mm-hmm. So much so that, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a second. We're not going to deal with that hypocrisy directly. So this is back to the Akron Beacon Journal. Davis didn't know that the crash had been front page news across the country. And his press agent, Jess Rand, kidded him, what a great little publicity stunt you dreamed up. Oof. A rabbi chaplain stopped by to offer comfort. And the visit was more inspirational than expected. Lying flat on your back in the hospital for eight days. And you're, you're bound to think about serious things, he later told the Associated Press. I couldn't get over how lucky I was. God must have had his arms around me. Otherwise, I would be blind today. While recuperating from his indus- injuries, Sammy converted to Judaism. <laughs> because a rabbi came by? Yeah. Gave him, gave him some things to think about. Some so kidding. this is in the Jewish community. We fucking love Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. Everyone points to be like, You're like, I thought everyone knew about the eye. But that guy, no, not Jewish just hero. the eye. Not just the eye. Everyone's like, <laughs> that guy over there, a number one mensch. Not, <laughs> we'll see. Complicated people are complicated. Mm. So 
in the hospital, everyone comes to visit Sam. Uh, everyone comes to visit Sammy except Frank. So Sammy's like, I knew Frank hated me. Then all of a sudden, Sinatra calls Sammy and is like, come to my house in Palm Springs, which is pretty close to San Bernardino, and recover from there. And Sammy's like, I knew you cared. And he went to <laughs> stay at Sinatra's house for like a couple of months of recovery. But what really happened was that Sinatra's mistress at the time, Cindy Bitterman, was also friends with Sammy, had been there to visit, and told Frank how broken up Sammy was about Frank not coming to visit, and basically forced Frank to invite Sammy to come to Palm Springs. So Sammy was fitted with his now famous glass eye. and Now famous. Well, famous for everyone but you, apparently. And uh, he even had the doctor make it a little reddish so it would match his biological eye when he was hungover. No, that's not true. It is absolutely true. So he was hungover every day. Yeah, basically. Sammy returned to the stage in 55 with a one-man show in front of stars like Marilyn Monroe, Humphrey Bogart, Judy Garland, and others. He came on stage with an eye patch, like a pirate eye patch. And and after a while, in the middle of the performance, he threw the eye patch into the crowd and yelled, I guess I won't be needing this anymore. And everyone went, bug fuck. Wait, they'd never seen a glass eye? Well, they, they didn't know, right? They didn't know that Sammy had the glass eye. They and thought so he just had a patch? They thought that he just had a patch. And from, like, a distance, you can't really tell. Like, up close, you could definitely tell that his eye was fake. But, like, from a distance, like, whatever. Uh, everyone went ballistic. They loved it. They loved the eye shtick. They loved the eye shtick. And at this point, Sammy was considered the greatest entertainer in the world. What? He, he eventually um, started in a show called Mr. Wonderful. And that became his nickname. Mr. Wonderful. Uh, so Sammy was considered the greatest entertainer in the world, and that's when he met Kim Novak. Do you know who Kim Novak was? Negative. Kim Novak is probably best known as the uh, peroxide Hitchcock blonde from Vertigo. So she was a really famous actor, actress in the 50s, and she's in, she's like the love interest in Vertigo for Jimmy Stewart. I know who this lady is. Yeah, right. So Vertigo is 1958, and she wore, like, a really famous lavender suit in Vertigo that we'll talk about in a minute. This is from Vanity Fair. It all started in 1957 at Chicago's most famous nightclub, Chez Paris. The man known as the greatest entertainer in the world was on stage. The smoke from his cigarette trellising out into the air. Shut up, Vanity Fair. Trellising out into the air. You had to see him. The gorgeous shirt. The cufflinks, the way everything billowed. He was in the dark, and suddenly the spotlight picked him up. He was electric. He was hot. It was almost a sexual thing. He was singing to Kim Novak, sitting at a side stage table. She had just finished work on Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, the most challenging film of her career. And that night would be the first and virtually the last time that Kim Novak and Sammy Davis Jr. would be seen in public together. What? Because he murdered her. No. At the somehow worse. At the heart of their star-crossed affair was one of Hollywood's most sacred monsters, the head of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn. It was said that Harry Cohn put more people in the cemetery than all the other moguls combined. He ran Columbia Pictures as if it were a family business, if mm. you know what I mean. 
I know what you mean. And in a way, it was because he wrangled control from his brother, Jack Cohn, who is back on the East Coast in New York. By the mid-30s, the the C-O-H-N. Cohn. Cohn. Cohn brothers. Because they're not Jewish. (laughs) This is like part of their thing, right? Is like like people who came from Eastern European, like the people with Jewy names had to change them. So he changed it from Cohen to Cohn. Okay. By the mid-30s, Cohn had nurtured Columbia from a low-rent B-movie studio on Hollywood's Poverty Row, which is a block off of Sunset, into a major Hollywood film studio. He wanted to be known as the toughest, meanest mogul in Hollywood. He brandished a riding crop and would slash it across his desk to terrify employees. What the fuck? He kept a... This is all still Vanity Fair. He kept a framed photograph of his hero... Benito Mussolini. I knew you were going to say Mussolini. I just felt on, it in my bones. On his massive desk. This is also in the 40s. This is not a good time to be a Mussolini fan. Is there a perfect uh, time for that? Yeah. But it, it's not like it was like the 20s where we're like, let's see what this guy has to yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, Benito Mussolini on his massive desk, and he had his office decorated to look like Benito Mussolini's Il Duce's. Uh, the reporter James Bacon, fresh out of Chicago, which Chicago is like obviously the mob capital of the of the country at that point. He was assigned to cover Hollywood for the Associated Press in 1948. He went from co- quote I went from covering Al Capone to covering Harry Cohn, and Cohn was by far the meanest. Oh shit! He'd keep tabs on all his writers, and he used to fire people all the time, usually on Christmas Eve. All right. He was like a cartoonish villain. Ebenezer. Yeah. So Cohn, long story short, basically created Rita Hayworth. And I mean, when I say created, I mean created because she came to Hollywood as a dark-haired, dark-skinned Margarita Carmen Cancino. So Cohn, himself changing his Jewish name Cohen to the more anglicized Cohn, changed Margarita's name to Rita Hayworth, dyed her hair her, the famous red color, created her whole persona. And she repaid him by marrying an Iranian-Pakistani diplomat named Prince Ali Khan. Uh, so Cohn was furious that he lost the object of his affection to a man of color. Cohn, by the way, let Marilyn Monroe's contract lapse in 1948 because he couldn't figure out how to market her in pictures. So by 1951, the double whammy of Hayworth's betrayal and the unforced error of letting Monroe go manifested itself when he met a woman named Marilyn Novak. Hmm. This is Vanity Fair and not me. I promise. I want this on record. This is Vanity Fair and not me. Novak was a shy, plump, large-boned 20-year-old from Chicago with no acting experience but a breathtaking face. Lovely. All of that's great. (laughs) Cohen had found his blonde. Since there was already a Marilyn, the first thing that had to go was her name. People would just make up names for people back then. It was crazy. And so he wanted to call her Kit Marlowe. I don't hate it. I don't hate it, but like, where does that come from? So she balked at being renamed Kit Marlowe, and incredibly, she won that battle, and they compromised on Kim Novak. Kim Novak is, is no offense to anyone out there named Kim. Fuck Kims. It's not a glamorous name. Fuck all Kims. It's a lyrics for lunch <laughs> exclusive. 
All right, Aviv has taken a hard stance on this, and all people named Kim are now fucked to us. Dead. <laughs> I'm taking the Harry Cohen approach. So uh, men seem, this is still Vanity Fair, men seem to consider Sammy Davis Jr. ugly because he was short and slight and his features were flattened from getting beat up in the army. But women knew better. His personal charisma was so great, his stage presence so sexually charged that women were outrageously drawn to him. Don't like that. When the New York (laughs) Daily News columnist Bob Sylvester wrote cruelly, God hit him in the face with a shovel, Davis was devastated. That hurt. This is the co the co writer of Yes I Can, whose name is Burt Boyer. Boyer said that hurt. It always hurt him, but after a while he got used to it, and he'd say it's getting me where I'm going. But Boyer also feels that Davis knew how attractive he was to women. Quote: Sammy liked his looks. He knew his face was ugly, but he worked on his body. He kept himself in fantastic shape. He And he was so immaculate. He had a wonderful V-shaped body, and he loved his little behind. He would ha- make a point of it. He would say, isn't that adorable? Aww. He would have preferred to look like Cary Grant, but he was pretty satisfied with what he had, and he recognized it worked for him. So, it didn't take long for the gossip industry to go into high gear about the attraction between Davis and Novak. Someone, someone at Tony Curtis's party must have put in they went to like a a party at Tony Curtis's house together like also Jamie Curtis's Lewis, dad right yes he's cuz he's in Spartacus yeah but that's Jamie Lee Curtis's dad um someone at Tony Curtis's party must have put in a call into Dorothy Kilgallen who was a columnist for a a newspaper chain owned by William Randolph Hearst and she slyly asked in her column which top female movie star, parentheses, K-N, is seriously dating a big-name entertainer, parentheses, S-D? Ooh, it's like Gossip Girl. Yeah, truly. <laughs> and if those initials weren't enough of a tip-off, she followed up the item two days later with saying, quote, studio bosses now know about K-N's affair with S-D and have turned lavender over the platinum blonde. And Kim famously wore a lavender dress in Vertigo that she hated. You said it was a suit and it was gray. Okay, so maybe that's not the picture that I fucking sent you then. (laughs) I just pulled a picture, man. So this is still Vanity Fair. Davis's sexual charisma had already been noticed by Confidential Magazine, the most scandalous scandal magazine in the history of the world. That's what Tom Wolfe says about them. Confidential held a mirror up to America's mid-50s paranoia and obsessions, its collective fears and fantasies, race, communism, sex, miscegenation, homosexuality. As early as March 1955, it ran an article whose headline read, What Makes Ava Gardner Run for Sammy Davis Jr.? So this is the article that the photos were taken Yeah. Uh, what makes Ava Gardner run for Sammy Davis Jr.? Some girls gold for go for gold, but it's bronze that sends sultry Ava Gardner. I don't know. What the, is he bronze? Like a reference the, to his skin? I think so. And in the following year, Confidential wrote, Shh, have you heard the latest about Sammy Davis Jr.? What is it Sammy's got that the girls go for? A big this dick. Is, the, actually, yes. I think Ava Gardner says, like, there's a quote that's like, uh, someone, I think it may have been Ava Gardner, or maybe um, 
Cindy Bitterman was like, Sammy Davis Jr. is 120 pounds, 100 of them being his cock. Nice. Good job, Sammy. <laughs> We're going to talk about Sammy's dick a lot. Oh, we are. Oh, yes. <laughs> so when Dorothy Kilgallen's item appeared, Sammy Davis Jr. called Kim Novak and apologized. Aww. Reassuring her that he had nothing to do with it. Quote, we can handle it any way you think is best. I realize the position that you're in with the studio. But Kim Novak insisted that the studio didn't own her. And she invited Sammy to her house in Beverly Hills for a spaghetti dinner. For Novak, Sammy was perhaps more than just an exciting, sympathetic man. He might be her co-conspirator in saying no to Harry Cohn and no to anyone who tried to put his stamp on her. This article alleges that she was, like, interested in Sammy because, like, it was, like, the way that, like, you'd say a teenage girl's, like, getting back at her father. But her father is Sammy, is uh, Harry Cohn. Which, like, I don't necessarily agree. I I don't like the implications of that, but whatever. But she might feel like she needs a little bit of backup. I agree. I agree. It's not this sentence. Like an not the sentence specifically. Oh. I like cut out a bunch of stuff that's like she was getting back at Harry Cohn for trying to control her by dating a black man. I'm like, mm, I don't like that implication. Oh, okay. Um, Davis and Novak went to great lengths to evade both the press and Harry Cohn's spies. Usually having quiet, intimate dinners together, David would enlist his friend to drive him to Novak's house and he would hide in the back of the car huddled under a rug. To avoid the press and any studio detectives. Eventually, through a third party, Davis rented a beach house in Malibu for a private rendezvous. The same house where Miley shot her video? Oh, hell yeah. (laughs) At stake was not only Novak's career as a screen star. By this time, she was the number one box office draw in the country. But also Sammy's potential career as a dramatic actor, which was one of his cherished but as of yet still unfulfilled ambitions. But yeah, Sammy really, really wanted to be a dramatic actor. He hadn't gotten the chance yet. He eventually did. Uh, Even without Novak complicating things, it wasn't going to be easy. Sammy's appearance on the 1958 General Electric Theater was almost canceled because the sponsor threatened to pull out of fear of alienating audiences south of the Mason-Dixon line. Because he's black. Because he's black. America was still deeply segregated. Just two years earlier... All but three Southern U.S. senators signed a document known as the Southern Manifesto, which equated school integration with subversion of the Constitution. The maverick senators who didn't sign it were Lyndon B. Johnson and two senators from Tennessee, Albert Gore Sr. and Estes Kefauver. Oh, Estes (laughs) Kefauver. No, Estes Kefauver is like one of those famous... American history names that I've never been able to pronounce. Uh, that's, a, that's a bingo box to check is if you can't pronounce a name. <laughs> uh, the FBI was still keeping track of lynchings. It was at, still at this point that, that studios were editing, doing Southern edits of their movies and cutting out any black characters. So like Dorothy Dandridge, who was the first black bombshell, was like cut out of movies in which she has like a significant part so that they could screen in the South, what? which is like deeply fucked up, but whatever. So they're dodging Cone spies, and it gets further complicated when Novak invites Sammy to visit her family in Aurora, Illinois for Christmas. 
at this point, Sammy is in the Rat Pack. But they weren't called the Rat Pack at this point. The Rat Pack is a coin ter- a term coined by Lauren Bacall about Humphrey Bogart and his like ca- like card playing guys, like his like group of friends. But Sinatra uh, didn't like the association with rats because he was like very, very, very involved in the mob. And so he called it the Summit at the Sands, as in the Sands Casino in Vegas. So Sammy was playing at the Summit in the Sands at this time. And Sinatra would not let Sammy miss the scheduled performance to go see Novak for Christmas. He would not let him. Not well, because Sinatra was the boss, right? The, the chairman of the board, blah 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 blah. So Davis couldn't even get a private message, according to Arthur Silber. Da- this Arthur Silber is David Davis's close friend and the guy who like drove him to Novak's house where he was hiding in the car. So Silber said that Davis couldn't even get a a private or secret message to Novak because her family only had one phone and it was a party line. You know, what a party line was. It was like a thing where anyone could could pick up and listen. So he was worried about the studio finding out. Like he was worried about the story getting out that that Sammy and Kim were. It was just like a line in the house that multiple phones were connected to. Yeah, but I think that that like you could call in, right? So like if I called you, and then like your mom wanted to reach you, she could just call into our to our conversation, and we would not be able to stop her from. Oh. I think that that's what a party line was. This is like way before my time, and I'm the oldest person on the planet. <laughs> um, You're not even the oldest person on this show. I know. Sammy's considerably older than me. You're right. So, I'm a spring chicken. So, Sammy begged Arthur Silber to go to Illinois for him. Okay. And give the message. And give the message that he couldn't up. come. Okay. Right. And so he literally got down on his knees and tears were coming out of his eyes because Arthur did not want to go to Chicago to just be like, uh, Sammy sends his regrets. And finally, Silver said yes. So at that time, there was a TWA flight that stopped in Las Vegas at three in the morning. And Silver caught that, flew it to Los Angeles, picked up an American Airlines flight, flew it to Chicago. Silver was at the Chicago airport when he suddenly was paged over the loudspeaker and it was Sammy's stepmother whose name was Pee Wee Davis. <laughs> Not important. Not important to the show. Her name was Pee Wee Davis. <laughs> so Pee Wee says, Sammy's coming. He's on the next flight. So what does that mean for him? Why is she telling him this at the airport? So, well, so he's like, don't go to Kim's house and tell Kim that he's not coming because he fucking is. He is and coming. So, and so Silver's like, what the fuck? I just got here. I just flew all the way here. How, so Silver wondered how oh, so the you hell could just call up an airport and be like, I need yeah, to talk to Silver. Yeah, paging Arthur Silver, blah 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 blah. So Silver wondered to Vanity Fair, how the hell did they let him go? He knew that Frank wouldn't have let him out of his engagement at the Sands even for one night. "Quote: I don't know how he did it, but Sammy came, and it was the most ludicrous thing. I mean, all this for five minutes. He it was just there for five minutes. Yeah, Silver was there for five minutes." It was just how deep the affair went. I was sent to Chicago to go to Kim and say, Sammy loves you. It's cute. Why it's couldn't he cute. just call her? Because they couldn't. Line. Yeah, party line. They didn't want the story to get out. It's very cute. However, Harry Cohn gets news of this relationship. He's in New York. He was attending a memorial dinner for his brother Jack, who died. 
and Aide leaned over and, and, and whispered in his ear what he had heard about Kim Novak and Sammy Davis Jr. Which was and, their Which was that her. they were dating. Okay. And Cohn, like, it was like a cartoon. Like, steam started to come out of his fucking ears. Like, he was so mad. He didn't sleep all night, and he boarded a, a plane to L.A., and the plane was almost diverted to Denver when he suffered a heart attack. He's so enraged, he has a heart attack. Yes, but he refused to let the plane land in Denver because he's like, I gotta fucking get this fucking guy. Plus, he didn't want the papers to be like, Studio Mogul dies in Denver. I don't know. <laughs> what a terrible place. Uh, what a horrible place to die. Um, but but Cohen's sort of at the end of his life, or approaching the end of his life, and he's just like, he's re- he's really fucking out there. So mad that he has a heart, that Sammy gives him a heart attack. So this guy, James Bacon, was one of the first West Coast reporters to get wind of Kim and Sammy's affair. And he called Novak's family in Chicago and was told by Joe Novak, Kim's father, that uh, Kim was returning to Los Angeles on the train. Quote, he was a railroad man, Bacon says. He even remembered what car she was in. Cool. Why? (laughs) I don't know. But he was a a railroad man was was a funny quote that I wanted to include. So the next morning, James Bacon was at Union Station in L.A. to meet Kim Novak. She gets off the train, and Sammy's not there. And he's like, Kim Novak, where's Sammy Davis Jr.? She's like, I don't fucking know. (laughs) Harry Cohen also found out about Novak's arrival and sent a delegation from Columbia Pictures, headed by this woman, Muriel Roberts, who often traveled with Kim. Um, And when they saw James bacon talking to novak they practically chased him out of the station they're like get away from her the affair was an open enough secret that sammy had to endure tasteless remarks about it even from his friends so milton burl another famous coxman you know milton burl he was like a comedian yeah. and apparently had like the the biggest dick of of ever I, I didn't know about his dick. The the uh, the joke is that he had to be buried in two caskets, one for him and one for his dick. Damn. So when Uncle Milty found himself standing I'm next sorry, to... I'm sorry, what? Uncle Milty was his nickname. I've never heard that either. Well, okay, when Milton Burl, parentheses <laughs> Uncle Milty, found himself standing next to Sammy in the men's room, he's like, he shows Sammy his dick, and he says, Sammy... If Kim Novak ever sees this, you'll be ble- you'll be back sleeping with Hattie McDaniel. Woof. So Hattie McDaniel is the first black person to ever win an Oscar for her role in Gone with the Wind. Right. And she was like a mammy character. And like so that so it's like so many different levels of fucked up that comment. But it, yes, they did compare dicks. Great. Another big-time gossip columnist who got into the act was Irv Cupsonet. Cups Column. That was that was the name of his his art his Chicago Sun Times like period like uh, his recurring column in the Chicago Sun Times. Cups Column or Coop. I don't know. But there were rumors that the couple was taking out a marriage license, and supposedly a clerk in Aurora, Illinois, found an application that had been filled out but never filed. Quote, it caused a hell of a ruckus at the studio when Harry Cohn picked up my column and learned that his star was about to be destroyed. In that era, Cohn thought 
who's going to see a movie star that's who's going to go see a movie star who's married to a black man? What the fuck? So Cone blew his top. He got so mad at me, Irv. This is Irv's quote. And at the story and at her, he called me and he used a few vituperative terms. And I said, Harry, we've been friends for a long time, but I have to print what I think is news. Harry said, fuck you and hung up. So what about the part where he like starved her, drugged her, didn't let her eat and Harry Cohn and and Kim, Kim Novak? Yes. Yeah. This is this is not a story about Kim Novak, but yes, all those things happened. She okay. had to lose like fifteen pounds um in order to like be a be an actor. It it was it wasn't great. Okay. It sadly is like a very common story about women at this time specifically. It was like studio sanctioned starvation and drug abuse um but it's like not um anything unique to just kim novak unfortunately yeah i know but i felt that we were leaving that out there are a couple of slightly conflicting stories about what happened next so i'm just going to give you the broad points harry cone cornered sammy either in sammy's hotel room or in cone's office and threatened to break both of his legs and apparently told the boys to take his other eye no Yes. So he's got the riding crop and he's like, boys, it, Sammy, if you don't live, leave Kim Novak alone, the boys are going to take your good eye. Sammy got very motivated to find a nice black girl to marry. Jesus. Whether he found her himself, as Silver says, or as Kalina, Karina Longworth reported in You Must Remember This, Sammy got a call from one of Cone's guys saying, I heard you like white chicks. Well, you should try Lorraine White. Lorraine White was a singer. Got it. So this is back to Vanity Fair. Lorraine White was a singer, an attractive young woman originally from Houston, a member of the Black Bourgeois. And in 1956, she had a small part in Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, a movie that we've all heard of, I'm assuming. Who's, who's us all? Uh, the listeners. Yes, I've heard of it. Um, she danced on Broadway. And Cy Marsh, who is Sammy's friend and manager, remembers her as a beautiful woman, bright, articulate, very well-spoken. Dog whistle. Um, At 23, she had already been married twice and had a six-year-old daughter. And Sammy gave her a call, and she went over to his hotel suite. Arthur Silber recalls that Sammy sat her down. He was sitting in a chair. I, Arthur, was on the bed. And he made her a proposition to marry him for a certain sum of money. And she would have all the rights that Mrs. Sammy Davis Jr. would have. But by the end of the year, they would res- they would dissolve the marriage. And she agreed to that. And that's what took the heat off. So there are a bunch of stories from their wedding. Uh, Lorray White was 40 minutes late for the two-minute ceremony, which was performed by a justice of the peace. After the wedding, someone took a call in Sammy's suite where the mob boss, Sam Giancarlo, who went by the code name Dr. Goldberg called everyone called sammy and told everyone that the pressure was off from harry Cohn, and apparently sammy got so drunk at the wedding that he had to be carried to his marital bed by his valet no word on whether that's still charlie or not and he allegedly put his hand around Lorraine's neck and squeezed when he saw her up there what the fuck yes so Harry Cohen had his last heart attack in 1958 and died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital two months after he first received word of Sammy and Kim's relationship. Sammy and Lorraine White divorced. 
But then Sammy met the woman who would be his second wife, whose name was Mae Britt, who was a Swedish blonde woman. They were, by all accounts, really in love, but their relationship was not accepted by many, if you can believe it. When Mae Britt married Sammy in 1960, 20th Century Fox declined to renew her option and dropped her, and her studio career ended. She was an actor. Um, She never regretted that, though. Quote, I loved Sammy, and I had the chance to marry the man that I loved. Hmm. But... Davis's marriage to Britt was another public relations debacle. It posed further threats to his career and his life when he arrived in Washington, D.C. in December of 1960 to play at a club called the Lotus Club. He was picketed by neo-Nazis bearing signs with slogans such as, Go back to the Congo, you kosher coon. What the fuck? There were bomb threats in Reno, Chicago, and San Francisco, basically wherever Davis played. Uh, when he was introduced at the 1960 Democratic National Convention in Los Angeles as an ardent campaigner for JFK, the Mississippi delegation stood up and booed. So he was really because Frank, well, not just because Frank, but Frank was like really close with the Kennedys, right? And Frank mm-hmm. campaigned for the Kennedys. So obviously Sammy's going to do that too. Okay. So Sammy was like all in on JFK. JFK loved Sammy and had even like, was like, Sammy, after I'm inaugurated, like, come to the White House, perform at the White House. This is a big fucking deal, right? So Sammy agreed to postpone his marriage to Mae Britt until after the election, even though invitations had already been sent out. What the? Because because he didn't want to harm JFK's chances of getting elected. Okay, okay, I get it. So Kennedy's elected. Sammy's set to perform at the inauguration, go to White House, go to events and stuff. Three days before the inauguration, Kennedy's personal secretary, Evelyn Lincoln, called Davis and disinvited him. That motherfucker. Because the newly elected president felt his presence would alienate Southern congressmen. Fuck the South. I mean, but but also, like, this is this is the problem with Democrats. acquiescing to all these, like... <laughs> You you have you have all of these people acquiescing to these lunatics and then aligning themselves with the lunatics and not the right side of history, you know. May Britt knew that Davis had risked his career to marry her, but there was a more intractable problem. This is Vanity Fair. More intractable problem in the making. She had co- to compete with his need to perform, and that ultimately won out, and their marriage ended in 1968. Addicted to showbiz. He's addicted to showbiz. Specifically because, I mean, I, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know this person. But, like, that's how he got his acceptance in the army from the people that were giving him piss-laced beer. Like, I understand why he's got this compulsive need to be loved by the audience, right? All the while, by the way, Sammy is constantly broke. Even though he's performing for millions, performing for millions of people a year, he doesn't own the rights to any of his recordings. Oh, my God. Bingo card. Bingo card. And meanwhile, he's spending crazy. He's spending all of his money on cars and houses and clothes to keep up with people like Sinatra and Dean Martin. He was an obsessive shopper. Watches, guns, fucking whatever. He collected guns. I don't want to talk about oh, it. It was you. very weird. <laughs> um, so around 1968, the culture started to pass Sammy by. Not just in his musical stylings, which is kind of obvious, but... Sammy became famous for being, like, the most inoffensive version of a black man anyone could think of, right? 
he like yeah. was very like assimilation Bill minded Cosby before he was a rapist. Right. Well, is yeah. That racist to say. I feel like no, I think that I think that that is like a similar model, right? Which is like the um, the exceptional black man or whatever. Make him right, appeal to make white him people as inoffensive as possible, and he'd allow anyone to make fun of him for being black. That's not really what the culture was doing in 1968. And Sammy, for a while, tried to embrace his blackness. He started dressing in like Nehru jackets, which is like vaguely Asian styled. I had to look it up. He wore love beads, but the the culture did not dig on that vibe, cat. They want their sweater back. Well, it wasn't that he. I mean, yes, half the culture wanted the guy in the suit back, and half the culture's like, "Who is this fucking old man trying to pretend to be like with the culture?" So he got booed off the stage at an event supporting Jesse Jackson, and this is in '68. And he told his manager that he never wanted to do anything like that again. So that's when Sammy became a Republican. No. Basically, he was just doing everything he thought he could do to make people like him. And for Sammy, that included marrying another black woman whose name is Altaviz Gore. Altaviz played Sammy's sister in the London run of the Broadway show Mr. Wonderful that I met, mentioned a couple times ago. Um, and so that was, that was a little weird. But he would be with Altaviz until his death kind of with i used air quotes because we'll talk we'll talk about their relationship but in 71 72 sammy made another safe career move and recorded our song of the week Candyman. not only is it our song of the week to give me an excuse to talk about sammy but also to give you an, a glimpse into what he had to go through to get his first last and only number one hit that was his first last and only number one hit Yep. The freaking Candyman. Yep. And as you mentioned, it was originally written for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Okay. So this is from Medium. Roald Dahl had written, Roald Dahl, the writer of Willy Wonka, of Charlie and the Chocolate yes. Factory. Roald Dahl had written some of the lyrics for the songs for Willy Wonka in his book. But the Candyman was written specifically for the film by a partnership which came across, which came about as close as you can get to songwriting royalty in the late 60s and early 70s. This is lyricist Leslie Bercuse and composer Anthony Newley. While the names of those two British songwriters might not be instantly recognizable, recognizable with an S because this is British, I can guarantee, I, the writer of this Medium article, can guarantee that you know many of the songs that they've been involved in, either as writers or co-writers, including Goldfinger, you Only Live Twice, the James Bond songs, and Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle won Best Picture in 1968, which uh, inspired the really great film book, Pictures at a Revolution, because it beat like Bonnie and Clyde. Um, but yeah, let's take a listen to Talk to the Animals. If we conferred with our furry friends, man to animal, think of all the things we could discuss. If we could walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals, and they could talk to us. If we consulted... So yeah, this is, this is like that main song from that movie. And it actually won an Oscar. Which Sammy accepted on their behalf. He was their friend. Yeah, he like knew them, and they weren't they weren't at the ceremony. Sammy accepted it. Um, they also wrote "Feeling Good," popularized by Nina Simone and eventually Michael Bublé. 
Oh, yeah. Because I'm feeling good. Yep. So, Sammy did not think that Candyman was good. He would be right. <laughs> the, so, this is from Mojo. Mojo.com. The saga began out of turmoil. When Sammy's contract with Reprise Records hit the rocks in 1970, his manager, Cy Marsh, opted for a deal with Motown Record. So he contacted Barry Gordy, and he was so excited. He was like, wouldn't it be great to announce that the world's greatest record producer, who's black, has signed the world's greatest entertainer, who's black? And Barry Gordy was over the moon. He was so fucking psyched according to this mojo article according mm-hmm. to you must remember this gordy was a little reluctant he's like does does sammy fit the motown sound and Cy marsh is like fuck the motown sound motown's in the sammy davis jr business now yeah. either way he, he offered sammy a contract and even promised davis his own spinoff label called ecology but Sammy's first Motown album would be a disaster. Was a disaster. And it was called Something for Everybody. Except it wasn't for anyone. It was something right. So let's take a look at the cover for Something for Everybody and see if you can figure out where they went wrong. Let's see. All right, so what are we looking at here? We're looking at Sammy Davis Jr. surrounded by a bunch of women that mm-hmm. look like they're in a cult. Mm-hmm. What makes you is, think that they look like they're in a cult? They're staring off blankly. And what's he wearing? A Jesus A outfit. Yeah, Jesus A outfit. There's like a blonde woman with a lollipop. lollipop. It's a, seems like a cardboard cutout. So, so this isn't this isn't this isn't right. Sammy I'm sorry this ain't it. it it in truth something for everybody please nobody I actually I think it's called something for joke. everyone yeah I know uh, <laughs> an attempt was made to mold Sammy in keeping with a more Motown image Marvin Gaye was brought in to produce some tracks um, an album was recorded live at Carnegie Hall but Barry Gordy had cooled on Sammy Davis Jr. and nothing was released um, as part of the live album. And the record label, the record label was like ready to drop Sammy. Uh, MGM Records executive Mike Curb came in to produce the next version of the, the the last Sammy record on Motown. Mike Curb persuaded Isaac Hayes to write the hit vocal version of the theme from shaft and he wanted sammy to move to mgm records to sing it the song could be a basis for a like a really good album like a chart topping album but first mike asked sammy to add of do a vocal take of the Candyman, the bris the brucus and newly song Candyman, and uh curb had like recorded the instrumental tracks with his a group of musicians he called the congregation i don't know but um with the original backing tracks available all sammy had to do was provide a fresh more vibrant vocal top like on top of it right and sammy did not like the song he said it was too julie andrews and even andrew newley one of the songwriters had doubts about his appeal when it was in Willy Wonka, it was sung by a, the candy store owner at the beginning of yeah. the film. 
Yeah. Um, his name is Aubrey Woods, and Newly hated Woods' performance and even offered to play the role himself if the producers would reshoot the scene, and they didn't. Who can take a sunrise, sprinkle it with dew, comfort it in chocolate and a miracle or two? The Candyman. The Candyman can. <laughs> this always creeped me out so fucking much as a kid. I hated this. makes the world taste good. It is creepy. This whole movie is creepy as hell. Wrap it in a sigh. I hate I hate how close he is with these kids. He's on like the beauty and the beast ladder. Yep. Talk about your childhood wishes. You can even eat the dishes. Who can take tomorrow? Dip it in a dream. Separate the sorrow and collect up all the cream. The candy man. The Candyman can. And then he fucking just stands candy there. Man can Checks out their asses. It with I hate, it. I hate everything about this. I want to eat you. The candy man yeah, there's a bunch of kids in his basement. What? Oh, Charlie. So... Newly hated this version. Why? For some unknown reason. <laughs> yeah. And Mike Curb eventually convinced Sammy to do this song by appealing to his love of Sinatra. After all, Frank recorded Young at Heart with a children's chorus, and it was a big hit. So why wouldn't Sammy follow in Frank's footsteps one more time? And Sammy, Sammy eventually agreed to record The Candyman, and he rushed through it, and he did just two takes. Okay. And and then he went to Vietnam to entertain the troops and said, this record is going straight into the toilet, not just around the rim, but into the bowl. <laughs> and it okay. may just pull my whole career down with it. Except it didn't. Yeah. The single was released on March 11th, 1972. Mike Kerr breathed a sigh of relief when it began getting airplay on an array of easy listening radio stations. Children love it, loved the song. Housewives love the song. Even Whoa, the hip- back up. Housewives love the song? No. The, this is who was buying the records. Was children they were drinking a lot of wine. Yeah. And even the hip at heart eventually dubbed it cool thanks to the belief that in some quarters, 
the thanks to the belief in some quarters that the song was really about dope peddling the candy man <laughs> uh when Candyman eventually made it to the top of the charts. Even Sammy managed a modicum of appreciation for its worth. After all, it had earned him around half a million dollars for two takes. Wow. This is from Medium. Like a lot of things in life, there's nothing like having a monster success on your hands to change your opinion about something that you've done. How did he get the rights back to his music? Because he changed record labels? Yeah. Okay. So, So he like got residuals on the song, royalties on the song that he wouldn't have gotten at DECA. Um, also, like when you're a black person signing a record deal in 1954, like you're not getting shit. Right. So it spent three weeks at number one and uh, it went gold and it he was nominated for a Grammy for best vocal performance for the Candyman. Wow. Um, and he w- it would go on to be one of his signature songs for the rest of his career. And it was like his big opener. He would just like open with the Candyman. So. Sammy also started to act out. In 1972, he campaigned for Richard Nixon. Now, this the fallout of this story seems a little nuts, but it is absolutely true. There was a campaign event where Nixon introduced Sammy on stage, and Sammy gave Nixon a giant bear hug. Here's the picture. Okay. So, you know, Nixon is, it's not even that giant of a bear hug, right? Nixon's at a microphone, Sammy's got his hands on Nixon's arm, and he's just like giving him him kind of a squeeze. A squeeze, for sure. Right? So this became the like Howard Dean yaw of the 1972 presidential election. This, for some fucking reason, Sammy became the laughingstock of the entire country for hugging Nixon so hard. I don't get it. I truly don't get it. But people are making fun of him on SNL for like years after that for hugging. There's like a sketch in the Reagan era where Sammy offers to like campaign for Reagan and Reagan's like, go hug Mondale to ruin his chances of getting elected. It's like so fucking weird. So it didn't kill Richard Nixon's chances of getting elected. He obviously did get elected in 1972. But this was like Sammy took the brunt of all of these jokes and I don't fucking know why. But... Sammy was basically a pariah after that. But Nixon, Nixon was fine. Great. Number one American. (laughs) Around this time, Sammy was also dabbling in the Church of Satan. Oh, great. We've heard of the Church of Satan here on this show before. We have. So some periodicals say that he was a full member of the Church of Satan, Others liken being a member to just basically signing up for the mailing list. His like name was on a list somewhere. However, Sammy did star in a sitcom about the devil. 1973's Poor Devil. Oh, come on. Is it really? So we're gonna we're gonna watch this is it this is kind of like a a retroactive trailer. The the you'll recognize the voice on this trailer is Jason Alexander. So I think this was made sometime in the nineties. So you know, this is a thirty second trailer. That was made way after the fact for Poor Devil. And I know that if you give me a chance, sir, I can deliver his soul. The fiery underworld was never cooler than when Ratbacker Sammy Davis Jr. went straight to hell as one of Satan's minions in Poor Devil. And Lucifer was played by none other than horror movie legend Christopher Lee. And hell has 
has no better prospect than a good man scorned. So you can watch like basically all of Poor Devil online. It is deeply weird. It only lasted one episode. I think they produced three and released it as like a TV movie or didn't release it, but like it exists as like a TV movie. It's the inspiration for Little Nicky. Not no. Around this time, Sammy and Altaviz also got really into swinging. Sexually? Yeah. And by that, I mean, Sammy forced Altaviz into swinging. She didn't really want to. And she basically understood that the price of admission for being married to Sammy Davis Jr. was that she had to go to these swingers clubs with him. It, their relationship was not great. Um, they made couple friends with notoriously horrible person Chuck Trainer. Uh, you probably haven't heard of Chuck Trainer, but I bet you've heard of his wife. Linda Lovelace, who was the star of Deep Throat. So this is from Dangerous Minds. I, ha- I, I have to stress, I didn't write this. This is from Dangerous Minds. Sammy Davis Jr. loved getting his dick sucked. Who does It was part of his code of marital fidelity. Blowjobs were fine, but full intercourse, that would be cheating on his wife. Or at least that's what he claimed. When Davis was married to his third and last wife, Altavis, the couple had an open relationship... And Davis played the field, but kept his code of marital fidelity, only having his girlfriends blow him. Of course, sometimes it did go a bit further, but Sammy always convinced himself he wasn't really being unfaithful. One couple who came to Davis's ha- the Davis house in the early 70s was Chuck Trainer and his wife, Linda Lovelace. Trainer was a total creep, a manipulative bully who pimped out his wife for sex. Lovelace had made a couple of loops of which are... Loops were short 8mm porn movies. They just referred to them as loops for some reason. And suddenly had become infamous overnight as the star of Deep Throat. Deep Throat was Davis's favorite porn movie. In her biography, Ordeal, Linda describes her relationship with Davis and how she once used the singer to get revenge on Chuck. Who I have to stress was violent and abusive. So the first night Linda went over to Davis's house, Chuck told her, if Sammy suggests anything, and I mean anything, you just go along with it 100%. Because Chuck was pimping out his wife to get into the showbiz circuit. Okay. Altaviz despised Chuck and wanted her husband to find someone else for her to like swing with. Uh, according to Linda, Altaviz was not into swinging, but only did it to keep hold of Sammy. And for a time, the two couples spent every night together, eventually going on holidays, like going on vacations, at Davis's expense. So one night, Chuck is watching a porn movie and or passed out on the couch. And Sammy asks Linda how to teach him to teach him how to deep throat. So Sammy apparently, quote, often talked like that. And Linda never knew whether he was joking or not. But this particular night, Sammy looked over to Linda's husband, Chuck, sitting just a few feet away and said, hey, do you think Chuck would mind? Linda knew that Chuck would mind. It was not the kind of thing he would be into. It was, according to Linda, his greatest fear. The very thing he dreaded most. What? Her? No, him, like having gay sex. Like being like being a homosexual in, okay. in some some way. So Linda explained this in her autobiography, quote, Chuck existed in a very narrow sexual area, probably because of his experiences with his mother. He hated all women and could never just have straight sex with a woman. 
He was also a former Marine and a gun nut. In that super macho world, there was no room for gays. So what position did that leave him in that left him with cruelty and animals and whatever bizarre dream he could come up with? As I was, I, Linda, was talking to Chuck, I signaled for Sammy to come on over. Chuck grunted at me, shifted his weight, making it easier for me to do the job. He must have been really into the dirty movie he was watching because he didn't realize what was happening until it happened. I was the one who unzipped his trousers, but I wasn't the one that knelt in front of him. A minute or two went by before Chuck realized that something was different. And then, although Chuck didn't utter a sound, his eyes were screaming for help. He looked back at me boiling mad and with his right hand gestured for me to come over and free him. And I just shrugged my shoulders and laughed. Perhaps this won't seem like much revenge to the reader, but finally, after all the awful things that Chuck had done to me, I was able to put him through an ordeal, a sexual ordeal. You might not think he was suffering much, but that's only because you weren't there to see the agony on his face. I don't like anyone inflicting any sexual trauma on anyone else. This is a deeply, deeply weird story. (laughs) From beginning to soup to nuts, I don't like this. No! Linda thought Chuck would say something to stop this, but he never said a word. This is Linda's quote. It was so typical. He had such a natural respect for anyone in a position of power that he didn't dare complain, and he just let the scene go on and on without interrupting it. The candy man can because he mixes it with love and makes the world taste good. Is that part of it? No. I, I added that. <laughs> oh, my God. When Linda finally left Chuck, Chuck remarried another adult film star, and Sammy was his best man. What the? Okay. So he got over it. He's fine. He got over it. In 1979, Sammy had one of his final meetings with Kim Novak. This is Vanity Fair again. 22 years after their doomed affair, they would meet again in 1979 and dance together one last time. Jack Haley Jr., who was producing the Academy Awards broadcast that year, had arranged to take Novak to the gala event. Haley recalls taking her to Davis's house so they could go all go to the Academy Awards together. Sammy and Kim met and embraced, and the two of them went out to the backyard, and Altavis and Jack went into the other room, and they let them talk. They were together for about 45 minutes, and they came back in. The four went to the awards, Novak in a stunning backless dress, and then to the Academy Ball, which is like the after party, where Kim and Sammy danced. And when Davis came back from the dance floor, he was incredulous. He said, not one picture. Nobody even took one picture. Hmm. 20 years earlier, Kim and I would have been mobbed. That's how much things have changed. So it was a good thing that? I mean, yes and no. I think that he. it was a good thing that no one took a picture. But I think Sammy's like, oh, my God, I wasted my entire life. And I could have been with this person. And people would have gotten over it. I find this story really deeply sad. Yeah, me too. The 80s were not super kind to Sammy. He reunited with the Rat Pack for some shows, but everyone's star had significantly faded. He gave up drinking and drugs and became obsessed with cooking. Everywhere he traveled, there would be like a mobile kitchen that followed him so he could cook (laughs) after his shows. And Billy Crystal was one of the many comedians who idolized Sammy. He followed in Sammy's footsteps by doing impressions, impressions of Sammy. And like like Sammy used to do impressions of Frank, you know? Mm-hmm. 
Billy used to do Sammy on SNL, but this is from a 1986 HBO mockumentary called Don't Get Me Started. This, by the way, if you remember last week's episode, is the clip that I'm not going to play. You're just going to watch and we're going to look at your reaction. You know, a lot is made of the jewelry that you wear. And what I notice is that you never make comment about it. I mean, it's just part of you. It's not like you're bragging. What are you or, seeing? You know, it's not an ostentatious thing. It's fun. They're fun. They're fun. And they are part of it because I can't get the damn things off, you know. But I love them. You know, it's fun. It's a, it's a tinkle tie. This is Billy Crystal? Yes. What are you, what are you seeing? This is Dorothy Dandridge. Um, this is very not good. Explain it to me, Lindsay. Um, to the audience. Th this is Billy Crystal in blackface. Oh yeah, full on, full on blackface. Very good. Crackers, pickles, monkeys, things found in a barrel. Very good. Oh my god. Things you hock up in the morning. Tell me more. Dan Haggerty. Ernest okay. I'm oh, sorry, so I have to listen. Okay. <laughs> so Sammy's in blackface. Or uh, Billy Crystal's in blackface as Sammy. And he's just like saying. Doing, doing bits, man. Doing, doing fucking bits. Little bits. And whoever he's with is trying to guess. The like connection between the. the it's like a game. By the way, whoever he's with is Rob Reiner reprising his role as Marty DeBerge from Spinal Tap. Oh, shit. But the 80s were a different time, right, Lindsay? It's not like Billy Crystal did blackface again as recently as 2012, 22 years after Sammy's death. Right, Lindsay? No. Why don't you take a look? Why don't you take a look at this clip? A couple of seconds, I think, will do it. So this is Justin Bieber and Billy Crystal opening the Oscars in 2012. So where are you going now? We're going to go hang out with Hemingway and Fitzgerald. And then we're going to go kill Hitler. Oh, my God. So this is a Midnight in Paris skit, and he's being Sammy Davis Jr. again. Uh-huh. In 2012. All right, so I got to say that if he's doing this in 2012 at the Oscars, it What's seems, wrong? To, it seems to me that he's a little too comfortable with this bit like how you, much was he doing this bit a lot so he <laughs> he did it on snl he like every basically every time he hosted snl he would do a sammy davis jr skit and then this mockumentary of like don't get me started that was his catchphrase right or like as opposed to you know hot cha cha pussycat or you know whatever sammy would actually say he'd go don't get me started and then there were, people would laugh right and so this hbo mockumentary thing was made as a result of the popularity of that character then he retired it for a while like like 20 years or so 25 years and then just like trotted it back out for some reason at the 2012 oscars because he thought it would be a good idea someone Why? thought it would be a good idea. i don't Did fucking sammy, know had Sa like sammy davis jr had been dead for for a long time for a long time so it's not like a let's uh -huh. honor him uh-huh and he's not really culturally relevant like 2012 like right like what is the like what why are we doing I, this i think that someone in a room somewhere bruce valange somewhere was like 
what if we put Justin Bieber in a room with Sammy Davis Jr.? Well, Billy doesn't Sammy Davis Jr. No. Bad. So, uh, <laughs> the internet wasn't happy. Oscar watchers set Twitter aflame over Billy Crystal's skit during the opening of the Oscars ceremony. The Oscars are so bad. What do you mean? Like, how Name- much bad PR can you get? Name a single Without thing that the canceled. Oscars have ever done wrong. <laughs> Name one. You can't do it. Crystal had played Sammy Davis Jr. the same way many times on SNL in the 80s, but that didn't stop hundreds of people from questioning the bit on Twitter. When Octavia Spencer oh, good. later won Best Supporting Actress for The Help that same night, comedian paul Shear, host of the how did this get made podcast tweeted that her win shows just how far we've come since billy crystal performed in blackface oh my god i mean that's a good joke talk talk to me about the rage that you're feeling right now hollywood is just so it's just great performative and they have fucking amnesia and they don't really give a shit about anything harry cone Threatened to take Sammy's other eye if he didn't get, leave Kim Novak alone, which essentially may have ruined his entire life. And then, like, we can just joke about it in 2012, yeah, Billy and Crystal Billy Crystal can, make can a just like do full body blackface. Yeah, it's fine. Yikes! When was Billy Crystal retired from hosting the Oscars? Um, he comes, he comes and goes. But so he was retired for a while and then came back in 2012 was like his like, I'm back. I'm, back. I'm Billy Crystal. But he did it a lot in the 90s. The 90s oh, yeah, was like I remember. The, the like thing. every Oscar I remember watching as a kid was Billy Crystal. So in the late 80s, Sammy was diagnosed with throat cancer. He smoked a lot. Who knows where Chuck Trainer's dick had been. Whoa. <laughs> the doctors wanted to perform surgery. But he declined for fear that it would affect his voice. And he basically said he may as well be dead if he couldn't sing. And after rounds of treatment of chemotherapy, radiation, a couple more years, um, including like a like a big celebration, 60 years in showbiz celebration put on by the Rat Pack. So they did this big performance honoring Sammy, including Michael Jackson, Whitney Houston, Eddie Murphy, Diane Carroll, Clint Eastwood, Ella Fitzgerald, the Rat Pack, but Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin left before the end of the ceremony, and so as they like welcome Sammy on stage for like hugs and shit, they're not there. It's like really fucked. That's really know. hurtful. Yeah, it is. Sammy did some very fucked up things and had some very fucked up things done to him by people he considered friends. It's really really sad. Sammy eventually wound up in Cedar Sinai Medical Center in L.A. With throat cancer, everyone visited. Jerry Lewis remembers Sammy's last words to him being, you can't leave here without kissing me, you old Jew. Excellent. From one Jew to another. All right. And Kim Novak came to the hospital. Aww. She showed up and sat there. They sat in the, the room together. And, quote, he was dressed to the nines for the meeting. He had sent to his house for a beautiful silk robe and silk pajamas. Because he wanted to impress her. <laughs> With his dick. With his giant dick. His throat doesn't work, but his dick does. Um, Sammy's Sammy's larynx was eventually removed. Um, Vanity Fair. He buried it with his eyeball. 
his eye his eyeballs somewhere on the on the, the road in San Bernardino. Um, this is from Vanity Fair. Sammy died in 1990. He died at home. He left Altavis uh, a 2.1 million dollar life insurance settlement and their house, which he had worked on his whole life to own outright. He also left substantial insurance settlements for May Britt and their children, but ongoing tax problems brought the IRS at the end. Cy Marsh, his friend and manager, said the government had an auction and they took it all. They sold all the stuff he had. He had Gary Cooper's hat, Gene Kelly's shoes, and Sammy was a watch freak. He may- maybe had a couple hundred Rolexes. Whoa. Rolexes, Cartiers, what have you. The IRS just doesn't understand show business. So Altavis was left with a $7.5 million tax debt. What the fuck? But Alto saw it coming. And so as Sammy was dying in bed, Altavis started stealing all of his slash their stuff and gifting it to people in their inner circle, people that they swung with, people from the fucking synagogue or the Church of Satan, just trying to liquidate everything before the IRS could get it. And before yeah. you start saying, like, oh, Altavis did a shitty thing, Sammy knew what she was doing. He figured he owed it to her after everything he put her through. Aww. And on his deathbed, he apologized to her for everything, which doesn't make it better, but, like, you know. This is Vanity Fair. Davis was buried between his father, Sammy Davis Sr., and Will Maston. Whenever the Will Maston trio appeared on stage, Davis was Davis Jr. was always in the middle between Sam Sr. and Will. And they are buried that way out in Forest Lawn. Sammy had arranged that Will Maston would be buried here on the left and his father would be on the right. And the plot in the center was left open for him. And that's where Sammy's buried today. It's amazing. He was a showman and a, com- a complete, absolute, utter showman, show business till the end. On, on May 18th, 1990, two days after his death, the neon lights of the Las Vegas Strip were darkened for 10 minutes as a tribute. Altaviz and the IRS reached a settlement in 1997 um, to like wipe her of debt. I think she has since passed away. And you can visit the site on Route 66 where Sammy lost his eye, although there's no marker on the road to memorialize it. Aviv's podcasting live from there right now. It's true. <laughs> I'm here from the site of the crash. Um, so I was originally going to go out on a, shit you not, a Barry Manilow version of the Candyman called Dream Duets, where Manilow duets with people who are dead. So he and Sam, like, like they like cut half of Sammy's audio and like let Barry Manilow sing it too. But uh, what we are going to do is go out on a Sa- another Sammy Davis Jr. song from that same album that Candyman's on called I Am Over 25, But You Can Trust Me. Whoa, no. No, so, you can't go out on that. So this, this is Sammy's attempt to, to really talk directly to the youth. Um, and we're going to listen to his I'm other over- rapey anthem. It's not a rapey anthem. It's like it's like. It's a, it's a, no, it's about, uh, like, you can trust me, little girl. No, 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 no. It's, it's actually like, I would say so. It, it's, it's about his speaking to like the younger generation and being like, even though you think I'm an old man who like doesn't know what's hip, you can trust me. And like, you'll, you'll hear the lyrics. They're interesting.
where can people find us on the internet? Find us on the internet at lyricsforlunch.com and on Twitter and Instagram at lyricsforlunch and for longer and weirder stuff. Hit us up. We're at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Where can people listen to Aviv's original song, Hitchcock Blonde, written about Kim Novak? <laughs> uh, you can listen to it on Spotify. My band's called Jacob the Horse. And what should they do when they hear this podcast? They should like and subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. If they're watching on Podcasts on Vivo, check us out on whatever podcatcher app you have. Tell anybody about this show any way you can. And join us next week when we do this all again. I did everything that you are doing. So I won't put you down and say you're wrong. Um, so until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying Candyman can. When put to the test, times I was afraid. The world might bust me Times when I settled For what second best But in my own way I tried to keep the torch alive Because I always felt that you Who are under 25 Would pick up where I faltered And go on a step or two and when someone calls your brother, 